Welcome to another edition of Cloud Unfiltered. This is a special edition from KubeCon. I have a friend and colleague, Alex Ellis, over here from OpenFaz. How you doing, Alex? Hi, Mike. Yeah, I'm doing well. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so, you know, last time I saw you was like 2018, I want to say, around there, and you guys were, doing, were you know, OpenFaz had, I don't know if it just came out, but it was, it was pretty new to the environment. So, so I'd love to hear, you know, about that and some other things that, that you're working on, top of mind. Yeah, so um, I remember meeting you at the, the Computer Museum in Palo Alto. That was super cool, looking around there. And um, the presentation at the time, I think, was really just kind of always giving an overview of what could be done. Yeah. And sometimes we'd show a, show a demo or someone from the community. I would coach to go out and do a demo or a presentation. And sometimes just taking a piece of code that you've written and then showing that running in Kubernetes. Once we just heard someone say, wow, in the audience... And we'd sort of taken it for granted having started that in 2016. Yeah. And got to the point where the people we knew really knew all of that stuff. We were in this little echo chamber, but the people that could benefit from it, the potential users, didn't. Yes. And so it's like, how do you keep repeating the same message but making it fresh? And people that, like maybe a mic that was in the audience, going, not that one again, Alex. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's just trying to find different creative ways of getting end user stories, making it human and relatable. Yeah, and that's that's the thing too, you know. So, and and, I've, and I and and I I like you talk to a lot of tech companies. Yeah. And what we tend to do as technologists, and and I'm I think I consider myself a little bit different, but a lot of technologists geek out on it, which I do too. But they, then they don't know how to relate that to something that is is the what's the benefit of it? Like, how can people use this? And I find that a lot of people you know, don't have that visualization skill. Like you might see a new tool, but they don't understand really how to put that tool in context. Yeah. So it sounds like what you do is, is kind of what you were doing was showing that in context. And I think that's a huge thing. It is. And you know, some, some of the things that you may, let's say that you, you try and solve a problem. Quite often for me as a developer with a developer background, I will find something that's bugging me or that I keep coming up against. And I think, you know, I could make that better. Mm-hmm. And I may have a go at that. And then if if I was doing it open source, I may put it on GitHub, write a blog post about it, and then see what kind of traction that gets, what sort of interest. And that's where a lot of these projects start. Um, Eric St. Raymond has a, an essay on this, and he says every piece of software, a good piece of software, starts by scratching your own itch. Yes, absolutely. Yep. And um, I, I actually had... Um, um, uh, Neil Creswell from Pertainer on one time, yes. and he's going to be on again. But he, the thing is, is he said he created that whole thing because of his annoyance with Docker. That's what. That's why he created that. You know. So I thought that was really cool. But I, I, I actually, you know, that's the same thing I like to do too. And I think that's where the best projects come into play. Is you're solving a solution that if you're hitting it, most likely a lot of other people are hitting that same problem too. Yeah. I mean, you say 2018. So towards the end of 2018, early 2019. Um, I, I left employment, started a company to work on OpenFAS yeah. for the users that I was aware of. We'd brought some of them to KubeCon. We'd done end-user talks together. Um, but there was no clear or understandable way of how to, to monetize and get paid for doing that. Sure. And so I started just thinking, right, well, what is it I can do that might be valuable to companies? I know this large network from all the KubeCons and DockerCons, CTOs and yeah. podcast um, interviews and all kinds of people. And so then I got chatting with people like Kasten and Sysdig and 
and Venify and they're like, well, you know, we could reach more developers. We could really use use that more visibility. Yeah. And we look at what you've done with OpenFaz, and at the time it had something like twenty thousand GitHub stars. Like, maybe you could help us. Yeah. And so once I figured that out, I actually was able to earn you know a reasonable amount of money um, by offering those insights, maybe doing webinars and technical content. But that actually led me to write more software because as a developer, I'm always sort of have that urge. And you mentioned earlier, you said about Arcade. Yes. So Love Arcade. One of the companies I was working with was Sivo in the UK. Yeah. And they wanted to build a Kubernetes cloud and, and mm-hmm. run OpenFast on it. So they hired me to come down and speak to them for the day. And I said, um, it sounds like you shouldn't build an open FAS service. And you would think well, that would be crazy saying that, right? Because I wanted to earn money from open FAS. So you need a Kubernetes capability. Then if it makes sense, put open FAS on top of it. Yes. And that's where I really started to learn about as a consultant, as a, a salesman, you've got to really think about what, what does a client need? Even if it means telling them what to buy your product. Yeah. And having that integrity. And they valued that. And, and I said, well, look, Darren Shepard's been working on this K3S thing. It might be useful for you. You don't need to have deep Kubernetes knowledge. You could implement that instead. And they, they went on to build their own managed service with it. Yeah. Now, once they had that, they needed some content around it for people to, to make sense of it, like you said. Yeah. So the, the process was you would install K3S on the server, log in with SSH, get your keys on there. Then you'd have to go to a special directory to find the kube config. You'd copy it to your laptop. Or you'd, you'd always log into the server, which is an anti-pattern. So I created Ketchup to basically do all of that for you. So I don't know if you've used it, but... Yeah, I have used Ketchup, and, and that's, it's a beautiful thing, because then, you know, it's, it's really... I mean, honestly, Kez is very simple, but what you've done is even simplify it more, which is a great thing, because, you know, one of the things that we, we've, we talk about, and it's a common theme from, from a, lot of, a lot of the guests I've had on the show, is that Kubernetes is, is, is this large ecosystem now. Think about somebody coming into Kubernetes, you know, because now you have to think about not only Kubernetes, but do you need a service mesh? How do you, how do you, you know, what are you going to use for monitoring? Do you need security? Yes. Um, you know, how do you, do you have to learn about YAML? You have to learn about, you know, uh, services and gateways and all these other things. It could be really, really uh, daunting to somebody that's coming into it. And really, one of the things that we can take away from this, if it's a common theme that I see, is we have to learn to simplify. And I feel like that's kind of what you're doing there, is, yes. you're, is you're, you're making it easier to get on board. Well, of course, as a Docker <laughs> captain, I was really into Docker Swarm at the time. And yeah. OpenVAS initially targeted that because nobody else was doing it. Yeah. And um, one thing that they had was this join, init, and join. That was the syntax. Yeah. So you'd go on a server, you yeah, initialize the Swarm, then from another server, you'd join and put the IP address. So I brought that user experience to K3S. Yes, that's so true. from your laptop into your Raspberry Pi or your AWS instance, you provision them with Terraform or whatever, then Ketchup install, and then join, join, join. You've got your production-ready cluster. That was the point, is, is developer experience, is removing the friction. Mm-hmm. But also, selfishly, it meant that these blog posts I was writing didn't have to have a 500 word primer of how to do all that yes just one line now <laughs> yeah and then i remember i had this revelation working with um with tls and cert manager and ingress and I wrote this tutorial of how you could deploy a simple service and get a tls certificate now you would hope that that would be what a few clicks yeah end up being five thousand words <laughs> to do it yeah the, the kubernetes long way yeah um 
So then I thought, well, there, there must be another way of doing this because you pretty much always need a TLS certificate. Yes. You almost need ingress. And so Arcade became this tool that would install the ingress controller in one command, install cert manager in one command, and then for OpenVAS, if you, if you wanted a TLS certificate, it would just install OpenVAS ingress, but then taking it one step further, we're like, well, how do we access these things? How do we get the password? And then so there are these info messages, and then so if you installed something and you forgot how to get the Mongo password, you go, Arcade Info gives you it back. <laughs> um, and it made my, my job doing this kind of developer relations consulting much easier. Yeah. Because I, I just had three, four, five commands. I could remix them. Then the community started adding them. Yeah. And I, it's funny, I started developing, and, and, and kind of like, like you, there was a need for it. But when I was in the CTO office at Cisco, I started de developing a, um, a demo environment for cloud native, where yes. you could kind of just click on something. It would automatically spin up those environments and then um, you know, automatically inject the commands and also give you like, uh, some kind of um, reusable demo um, yeah. for, for a lot of these things because there was just that, that need for it and it would like notify you if a demo wasn't working, it would like give you a Slack message, it would you know, do all these things that, for you. But um, you know, it's, it's so amazing because that's what I see you always doing. That's why I'm always amazed yeah. because I, you know, I see all these tools and, and I'm like, oh, that's another Alex Ellis tool. You know, it's, and, it, and it actually makes my life easier and, and I thank you for that because I think it's pretty cool. Um, you know, so yeah, I, I totally relate to, to, to where you're going it, there. I mean, it, that, that, is, that is the point of it, you know, thanks for saying that, is want to make, first of all, perhaps my life easier, and yeah. then if it can apply to other people, them as well, because <laughs> at the end of the day, if you're creating an open source tool and maintaining it, creating community around it, that's a reasonable amount of work, yeah. and you need to have the motivation and the staying power to see it through, and actually, for some open source projects, there might be a point where, say, well, you know, what was the why that started that journey and does that still apply today or is it different and does one exist anymore? Yeah. And there, there are some projects, I mean, there's a lot of projects that had a really good reason for starting at the beginning, you know, but the technology has shifted so much that those projects just aren't relevant Yeah, like anymore. we mentioned Swarm, so that's yeah, yeah. pretty much, yeah. you know, not something we talk about anymore. Yeah. Um, but it could be even, let's say, say Ketchup, I don't really touch very much now. Yeah. Um, had a very strong use case around that. I was doing some training for the Linux Foundation and on on Raspberry Pis and one thing or another. And so it was very important then. But once it worked, I've kind of left it where it is. And yeah. people will ask, well, you know, I want to create a YAML file and write all of the schema of all the nodes I want and then Ketchup should do it. And if I delete one, it's just like, no, <laughs> it's not something I want to maintain. You can go and create that if you want. It's yeah. open source. But it does give you create a cluster, join a node. That's, that's what it's really meant to do. Yeah. It breaks because something that Ranch has changed will fix it. But that, that's what it exists to do. Yeah, and that's, that's an, another interesting topic because um, one of the things that I, that I often talk about, especially in Kubernetes, is it's kind of the project scope. I don't think there's a well-defined project scope. At least maybe I just didn't read it enough, so it could just totally be me. But, you know, I feel like there's not, like, this is where we're going to stop in Kubernetes core, you know, but... What happens is, is somebody will come out with like a add-on or, or a plug-in or an app that's around Kubernetes, and then the Kubernetes team is like, hmm, uh, maybe I'll just integrate that into it. You know, so really, I would love to understand like there should be a core competency, and that's what they're going to focus on. And I actually think that makes it better to know that here's the big things we're going to focus on. You know, and obviously there could be other things later on, but you know, this is this is our main mantra. This is what we're going to do. 
Yeah, I think having a strong vision is something that you do tend to see more with uh, the sort of, let's say, let you see it less with committee-driven projects. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> less with a with a big um, set of vendors that are all trying to represent their own commercial interests within yeah. something. Yeah. And so, yeah, with open fares, one of the things I hear is sometimes people will go and they'll try try out Knative, they maybe try out OpenWhisk, try open fares, and some of them will will have stayed with those projects. We don't hear from them, but the ones we hear about generally say things like, "It was a lot simpler to install." There are a lot fewer things going on. We, we understood how to debug it. And that's really been important as a driving force is um, focusing on the developer experience, like you see with the tools, making sure that it's simple to run and easy to understand and that it's driven by community. So there's ways to commit code to it. You can extend it if you want. Yeah. Um, and so that's really helped it with such a small team, with me being the predominant person working on it, focusing on it, and the community helping and end users feeding back into that. Yeah. Being able to sit at the table with IBM and Red Hat and Microsoft and VMware and and be and have customers pay, come and pay us instead of them for our software. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it's pretty awesome, but yeah. it just shows you that this can be done. Yeah. Um, and some people might say, well, well, what's the risk if there's a smaller vendor? Well, at the end of the day, a lot of this code is open source. It's got 380-odd people that have contributed to it it's been around for a really long time. People yeah. know how to run it. The worst case is that you, you know, you may you may take on some maintenance of that. We might might migrate to something else. You know, it's funny, but people talk about the risk of, of open source, which I think is you know with with these big projects and things like that, or relatively big like like OpenFaz is now. Um, you know, it's 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 so looked at that you know there's there's probably less risk, but then. In the same turn, people are like, oh, we'll just throw stuff on AWS. They don't know what systems they're running on. They don't know the back end of that. They don't know anything about it. They're okay with that. But yet, a software you're going to run yourself, that's what you're more nervous about. You know, you're, you're throwing something on a black box out there. And, and that's, this is what they're nervous about. That seems strange to me. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that I've learned through, I wouldn't say I've mastered enterprise sales, but I know... A heck of a lot more than I than I ever thought I'd need to know yeah. um, is that th the risk can also be that the person that bought the software into the company leaves. Absolutely, they bring in new management, and it's like a, a new broom cleans the room. Yes, it's like well, why are we paying that vendor for that? Well, I've never heard of that. Or oh, this is my favorite vendor, and we're going to do that instead. Yeah, they, they don't even think of that as a risk. Yeah, or the and legacy. It's, it's more likely to happen than the actual software vendor thinking like, oh no, I don't want to do this anymore. Or the custom legacy software that they've had running for like 50 years that they're not worried about that and that no. has no support whatsoever and the company went out of business 50 years ago and they're, they're creating the code right now and there's one person that knows it and if they leave then nobody knows it. So I've enjoyed <laughs> speaking with other founders and, and, and CTOs here and really sort of bringing up some of these things that I've encountered and learning from them and being able to say, well, look, you know, have you had this? Yeah. Have you had that happen? And I think it's sort of understanding what is driving that risk or... If someone's asking for a 15-minute SLA, why they're specifically asking for that? If they can share it, what happened to them in the past? Yeah. And maybe you can abate those concerns or, or, or help them come up with an alternative. Yeah, that, yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Um, so, so, you know, 
Uh, one of the things about OpenFast that you know that I, I've always thought was needed, and I'm just gonna because I have you here right now, I'm gonna Go just on. give it right to you. Okay. And maybe you have it now because honestly, I haven't looked at it in probably about a year. So okay. you know, just because I've been doing other things at work, not because OpenFast isn't a great product, it is absolutely a great product, great solution, great whatever. Um, but I always wanted an inline IDE for it. I always wanted something that, you know, I, it's great, you know, I, I throw stuff at, at it, I'll throw it in a directory, but when you're doing stuff fast and you just want to like plug something in real quick, I always wanted something inline. And I don't know if you do that now, but I always, I always felt like that's the one thing that I, that I felt like I was missing. What, what kind of use case would you have for that? So sometimes you just need to write something really quick that you want to trigger, like maybe just for a test. And you okay. don't want to go into like, you know, you don't want to go into a directory or you don't want to go into VS Code or you don't want to yeah. go into, and maybe you don't even have that stuff right where you are. Maybe you're on a plane or you're on, you know, or something and you just want to kind of just create something real quick, automatically create the file and then execute it, you know, kind of in line. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder, yeah, I wonder about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's so many things that we could do. Yeah. And what we tend to do now is you were talking about Kubernetes and the sprawl and yeah, not yeah. knowing what's going on is kind of defend the core. Yeah, yeah. And also really drive OpenVAS based upon what paying customers are asking for. Yeah. I'm not paying, by the way, so yeah, that's fine. Yeah, well, I know. I know Cisco's <laughs> not, not a client yet. However, um, you know, one of the things that we have added recently or we've kind of had for a while is Kafka integration for events. Yeah, yeah. That's and awesome. that's something that is actually quite important for a lot of companies. Absolutely. But we never really wanted to make it part of core OpenFast because the idea was it should be easy to use and not have a ton of requirements, yeah, yeah. agile, run yeah. on Raspberry Pi as well. Yep. But if you want it, there's an add-on that we can bring that can get you to that. That's cool. Now, with writing code in a text box and hitting a button, yeah. you know, perhaps for testing, there might be some, something around that. <laughs> but certainly, one thing that I wanted to bring was quite an opinionated flow of how engineering should be done in, in a company production. Yeah, which is totally that. Whereby, yeah. ideally, you should never even deploy from your laptop. You should I write agree. the code in a Git repo yeah. and the CI pipeline should deploy it. Yes. And we had that workflow, actually I showed that at the DevNet Create back in 2018, is um, you could type in an IDE, your IDE was GitHub, yep. so you didn't need any of this stuff. Yeah. You hit commit, deploy it within a couple of seconds, and then you could run it. Yeah. So we got close to it. Yeah. But I do remember Jock, uh, one of your colleagues, Reed, he was he made a little ID with OpenFAS and he was executing the code in the background. So yeah. I think if this is something that um, our customers start asking for, then it's something we'll consider. Yeah. I mean, and that's really how I'm driving the roadmap now is, you know, what what do they want? We've got limited resources, also don't want to dilute the core. Yeah. Because yeah, and that's and and this is totally my request, and this is my you know just just for my needs selfishly. That's that's all this is, Wait. and and you're doing the right thing and and asking the customers because you know a lot of bigger companies they think you know they start to think that they know what the customers need and they don't. And but if you listen to the customers and really look at what is asked for the most, that's going to be a win. You know, <laughs> always listen to the customers. <laughs> I was having a really good discussion with um, Engin Deary from Schwartz IT. And they're, they're, they're a customer and um, they, they're very interested in OpenFAS and they were checking out um, various different toolings um, for applying compliance Yeah. so that people couldn't, let's say, deploy images from the Docker Hub. They always had to be from the private registry. Mm -hmm. the, the, this isn't what I understand air gapping to be, but 
some people call air gapping, you mirror the images and you deploy from your registry. And that's, yes. that's what they needed to implement. And so they started looking at OPA, they liked the language, OPA. Yeah. Then they brought in Gatekeeper and the team really struggled with it mm-hmm. for several months. And they went back to Engin and they said, look, we just can't get on with this. What else could we use? And eventually they settled on another Kubernetes project that uses YAML and mm-hmm. they loved it and they didn't have to write code um, when Stan Rigo. And he was open enough to take the feedback and swap the technology. And I think that's also, as, as vendors, we need to be as open to that as well as open source maintainers. Yes. And we're never gonna know, like if we come up with something, is it, is it gonna be right? Yeah. And so for a lot of things I'm doing at the moment are sort of almost experimental. Um, you and I talked about micro VMs. This is like, I don't, I don't know why this interests me so much, but as soon as I saw like Firecracker and, and some things like that, I was like, this seems really cool. Like this is a, like next, this is the next thing, you know? So I'm, I think micro VMs has, has a really good place. So just talk a little bit about it because there's probably a lot of people out there that don't even know what micro VMs are, don't know where it came from. You know, just tell me a little bit about it and maybe yeah. you're interested in it. So if we go back in the history books, we have our bare metal machines, we'll rack and stack them, we'll put our, our Cisco router on the top of it, we've got a CCNA and, mm-hmm. and what have you. Then eventually sort of VMs come along, we don't really trust them and they gain mainstream adoption. and. VMware and OpenStack and other, other initiatives like that become very, very popular. However, yeah. the drawbacks, as I remember at ADP, of, of the VMs we used to use is the images become very bloated over time. Mm-hmm. So you might start with a lean image, but eventually you're deploying a, a 60 gigabyte VM image yeah. to your own machine that needs 16 gigs of RAM. To start it up might be three minutes, and then all the services have to load. Not to mention people take snapshots and forget about it, and then they get huge. Well, that's the <laughs> other thing is like, let's say you had self-service mm-hmm. system so you didn't yeah. run those locally it's yeah. who owns the VM it's extremely unclear yeah. we used to always run out of capacity and mm-hmm. send emails around or maintain spreadsheets um, and so th- those VMs are slow why? because there's a lot of software in them they had a full UI they were meant to be driven like a machine to emulate a floppy disk drive and goodness knows what else VGA but we didn't need that necessarily yeah. or perhaps we did so then containers came along and they said, well, maybe you don't need all that. Maybe you could just need a basic Linux operating system with a few utilities in it, and it could be useful to you for server software. So Node.js, .NET Core, C Sharp, Java, Go, all of these languages can target a, a container and run mm-hmm. headless yeah. extremely well. You can even run a headless web browser with Puppeteer mm-hmm. to go and scrape websites and do testing. So the containers became really popular because not only could you now ship around these images and share them, and collaborate on software. So I want Postgres. I don't have to package it. I just download the official image. Um, we then had this copy on write file system, which was if I launch 10 Postgres instances, only the first one uses space and the rest only use space for what they change. When I delete it, the 100 kilobytes is gone. Yeah. Right. So containers also had an extremely fast launch time, probably under a second. Um, and then there were other benefits too, like the kind of networking that we had, some of the projects that would manage them, the way they could integrate and be discovered. But obviously the downside to containers is the level of isolation. So if you have a need for hard multi-tenancy where, whereby you may have hostile code or you need to treat it as hostile, mm-hmm. we don't really have a good way of isolating that. Yeah. 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 And that's where micro-VMs come in. So the idea is that 
will get something that looks and feels, smells like a container, but isn't. It gives us the advantages of a VM and containers. Now, the launch time for something like a Firecracker VM is probably incredibly quick, maybe 100 milliseconds or less. You can then use the container image that you would be using in Docker anyway, the networking that you would be using Docker anyway, the Docker hub that you're using anyway, and goodness knows whatever else, you can just bring it on because at the end of the day, none of that stuff is specific to containers. It's just Linux that Docker happens to use or, or invent. Yeah. So we're able to kind of just move it all across and use the microfilm, and we have that full isolation because it has its own kernel, its own operating system, yeah. and it's super fast. So that's kind of like the, the best of both worlds is that, hold on, yeah, is, is that, you know, what you have there is... Um, is that you know you you have that isolation now, but you also have the really fast speed. So it, it actually you know that's 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 a huge benefit to, to all of that. Yeah, I mean the the reason that AWS created Firecracker was that they 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 were trying to run a system that felt like containers with VMs, and they were having to do something like provision the machine, have a pool of them so that it was quick, and then clean them, scrub them. For the next customer to go into afterwards yeah and obviously they didn't really want to maintain that found it very very difficult there were trade-offs it was wasteful having all those machines pre-provisioned and they they happened on some technology from chrome and hacked around with it and created this firecracker thing and now most of most if not all of lambda runs on that and fargate containers as well that's pretty amazing i mean so so you know and again that was a need that they had that they just, you know, that they, that they moved over, that, that they saw, and they created a technology around. Now, the thing about the micro VMs is that you can't just drop it into Kubernetes and have it work the same. That's, that is a challenge at the moment. And it might even be slower than a container using some of the technology that's around. So the way I would see things going forward is we will probably um, continue to have VMs for certain appliances, maybe top of rack kind of stuff like that, um, where you don't really need high availability, you just need it to work. Just like a switch on the top of your stack was never high availability, is one switch there. So, you know, we may have a VM that does that job or does a firewall. Second, containers will probably continue to be run on Kubernetes, but we see the container image format on other platforms like um, fly.io will run a, a VM image for you Google's Cloud Run will run it. OpenFast will run it for you, as long as it serves HTTP. And then, obviously, you've got Kubernetes if you want to run stuff yourself. Yeah. Then you've got micro VMs, and this is where I really see very specialist use cases, because it's not quite ready to be drop-in replacement in, in, in case. Yeah. We're really looking at things like what Weaveworks is doing. So they have a big customer, a telco customer, that has bare metal machines, and they want to run Kubernetes clusters on there. but potentially thousands of them. Wow. And so they're using Firecracker, and their project's called, um, it's just become public on GitHub, Liquid Metal. Okay. And so the idea is they define what kind of cluster they want, how many hundreds they want. Their code goes off and creates all the micro VMs, plums them together, and they have a Kubernetes there. That's pretty cool. <laughs> the way I'm looking at it is through CI. So um, I've worked a lot of GitHub Actions recently, and when I set up my own runner for my commercial add-ons for OpenFAS, I noticed that um, the builds would clash. 
So if I'm creating a temporary Kubernetes cluster or I'm creating a Docker image in two different builds with the same name, they'll clash. Oh, wow. And it'll, it'll break. So then you go, right, well, I'll spend a few days putting different names and images so they never clash again. But you're never going to be sure. Then if you have, let's say, one version of Node.js on the machine, you build your code, you test it there, and then you set up a different self-hosted runner later, have a different version of Node on it. And so you've got inconsistencies in how you build things. Gotcha. You've got two machines that are building and have a lot of problems. And so what I'm looking at is, can we take micro VMs to do these builds instead for you, schedule them efficiently so you've not got wasted resources on your big expensive nodes? Um, and so far, it's looking really, really good. That's, that's really There's cool. a lot you have to learn. And because it took so much R&D, I, I took Richard from Weaveworks and I said, let's put all of this out there for everybody. So we've done a, uh, like an hour-long video webinar together, or an hour and a half, and a little lab that people can go and take. So if you're interested, you can find out what we know. And that's on, the, that's on the liquid liquid metal itself? That's on that? Or no, that's using Firecracker. Oh, using Firecracker. Yeah. So, so it seems like it's still, I mean, it's been around for what, two and a half years now? Or it may be longer. Maybe I'm longer. I can't yeah, exactly remember yeah. the, the initial date. But it seems like it's still pretty early days with, with microvenes. Firecracker isn't yeah. early. No? What is early is use cases. Like the orchestration around it. And the orchestration. Yeah. Like, yeah. Because there's certain constraints technically, like yeah. you can't add another drive once you're running. And Kubernetes kind of assumes that you'll be able to do that you're not really able to share data from from the base machine into the VM and vice versa. And so, yeah, there's various things that... And also, I think a lot of people are used to the way we run things now. Yeah. There absolutely. are alternatives. So yeah. um, Google have a project called Gvisor, okay. which is a software-emulated kernel. It's particularly slow. Yeah. But because that runs in the container or in the container level it's able to block and intercept anything that you might do to try and break out of it. And so there's different alternatives available and some of them are suitable as well. And perhaps hard multi-tenancy isn't going to be useful to a company like I met last, last night from Copenhagen and they were um, a fashion company. Okay. Do you really need hard multi-tenancy yeah. if you're one team deploying yeah. microservices for a fashion website? Yeah. There's definitely, you know, there's definitely different solutions for people for different needs, obviously. Because you, you just got to figure out what works for you. Because you know? AWS is a service provider yes. with <laughs> tenants that have really high expectations. So, yeah, you can see why it was important to them. Yes, absolutely. Um, so we're we're running on about thirty minutes now. Uh, so a couple questions I just wanted to ask you real quick. We are at KubeCon, so. What is it, and, and you know, I know that you're, you're huge into tech like, like I am, what is it that you're really interested in seeing right now? Or what is it that you've seen in the last few days that you're like, oh my God, this is cool. You know, like, because I geek out on stuff like that too, where, where I wanna you know, see certain things and I, I find something, I'm like, oh, this is pretty interesting. Is there anything that you've seen that you're excited about being at KubeCon here? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm a technologist <laughs> yes. as well as a developer, which is why, why I'm sat here with you now. And, um, what, I would, what I'd like to see is some of the people that create the projects that I've heard of, or some of the people that are creating new technology, and be able to chat to them and ask them a question face-to-face, -face because yeah. it is so much different than trying to do it over Twitter or book half an hour in your calendar, busy calendar with somebody, yeah. and they don't really understand why you want to speak to them, whereas somewhere like this can be quite welcoming, and it's understood that you're kind of here representing the technology and your interests. Yeah. Um, and so I've had a few chats with people that are working on WebAssembly. Um, 
and sort of see what is it they think the unique value is of it. Yeah. And when you bundle that into Kubernetes, what are the trade-offs and are there any benefits compared to using a container today? And having spoken to some of them, I haven't heard clear answers on those questions yet. And that's something that I've learned through sort of this marketing and consulting journey is that you, the main thing that you need to understand is positioning. Absolutely. There's so much out there. <laughs> How do you position what you've done? Who is it actually for? Yes. Do they have that need? What are their alternatives? And their alternative may be do nothing, yeah. use a spreadsheet, yep. use email. You know, it might not be use your product or, or another one. Yeah. And it's so funny because I've had these exact conversations with a lot of the startups this week too. And, um, you know, and, that, and that's the exact conversation I have. I say, you know, we love to geek out, but that's what we do. But you actually have to have like a real use case and show people, give them that visualization of, uh, you know, why they would want to use this. Because people, as I said before, people are not good at visualizing the use cases of these things. So you have to show people that. You have to show it in a working scenario. You have to show that it's not hard. You have to make it easy for people. You know, all those things together with great documentation, great APIs, lots of blogs, lots of content. Content is king. Content so. is definitely king. <laughs> yes. And it's the one thing that engineers usually don't like to write. Yes. I love writing. I don't know. I, don't, yeah. I think you do too. Well, we're, so. Perhaps we're technologists. Maybe we're sort of a different breed. But yes. many when I speak to customers and, and, and people here, what I find and keep hearing is that the engineers want to do the work. They yep. don't want to talk about it. Yes. And I was at, at dinner with some friends from Gitpod um, before the conference, and they were saying the same, is that they, they wish that their developers would write more. And my, my sense is it's about perfectionism. Yeah. And if you have any thoughts on this. I, 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 you know, what I think is that the people that really want to code, you know, it's, it's rare, like you and I, that, that are like, you know, people that can talk about it and are deeply technical. That's a rare skill. I consider myself, that's my superpower. My superpower is that I can go really deep, but I can also explain it. And that's, that's kind of been, yeah, and I think you too. Um, and I feel like engineers though, they're really excited about um, you know, software developers, things like that. They're really excited about developing and optimizing and, and you know, doing this stuff in code, which I equally mm. get excited about, but that's all they want to do. That's, that's, and that's a different breed. You see that perhaps it's something wrong with me. Maybe I maybe I really want. I don't think anything's wrong with you. Maybe, maybe there is, and maybe that's why I'm like that. Is that I want people to use what I'm doing. Absolutely. And I. What, what else is there? Well, you'd be surprised, especially when a, a lot of people are writing code for their job or because they yeah. they want to scratch their own itch. But what I want to do is. I, don't, I want to work on something that's meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. That other people are drawn to, like, you know, people have come up to me and said, oh, um, it's Alex Ellis, thanks for Arcade, thanks for Everyday Go, yeah. your book, and one thing and another. That's, that's what, what I want. And what I mean is, yeah, maybe I'm broken in that I want that, and maybe I should just be happy with myself, but I'm not. <laughs> I want to create things that solve problems for other people as well. And the more I do that, the more I realize that I have to be able to write something that with all of this noise it's going to cut through that and give them the benefits give them a use case and and uh, there's a system that i use a very old one from from teaching called format okay which is what why how what if yeah and so let's let's talk about um let's talk about something like um 
inlets, yeah. the network, yeah. networking turning tool I built. Yeah. I want to write a blog post about inlets and um, Kubernetes. Yeah. So the blog post might be um, testing testing your code while you're on, on, on the trip or something like that, or working on the API of your colleagues while you're away from way on the conference. So we, we boot up our laptop at home, we install Kubernetes Minikube, we deploy inlets, we've got a public IP, we shut the lid, we got on a 12-hour flight, we're now in Barcelona, we open the lid and we've got the same IP address on the internet, the traffic's routable to it. So first one, what is it? Yeah. We've pretty much explained that. Second one, how do we do it? Here's the technical steps. The why is the one that you often need. Why would you want to do that? Yeah. And sometimes you might not start with a why. You've got the technical idea and you've got to come up with a why because we want to collaborate or because we want to be able to access some code while we're away. We want, we're, we're working on a new dashboard and we want to be able to get it up and, and see it and test it with our friends. But the what if is really important as well. And everybody tends to miss this out to your conclusion. What, what did I do? What would I have done differently? Um, what's the opportunity for you? What's the opportunity for me? What future work exists? How could you apply this? How have other people applied it? Um, and I think that just taking that simple system, if you've already done some research, if you've already played for a tool or technology, you can sit down and you can, you can write that in, in two hours. Yes. And publish it. Yeah. The problem is most people don't know about the structure. Yeah. They don't believe that it works or they, they have, too, have too much perfectionism. Yeah. Worry well, that's, that's a lot of people, yeah, are, are very afraid to put stuff out there. And yeah. that's, that's a huge thing. And unless you've done it and, and, and know that it works, you know, it, it takes a little bit. So, um, okay. yeah. And, and so, you know, I, I definitely understand that. So we are at 37 minutes. These guys are going to kill me for, for being so much over, but I so enjoy talking to you. So Great. I probably don't even have to ask this, but where can people find you on, on social media? Is it? Yeah. yeah. So Alex Ellis UK on Twitter is probably the best. And yeah. then if you go to openfast.com, you can click on store and you have my, my ebook on everyday go. There's one on OpenFast and raspberry Pi. find something that, you know, you connect with. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. This is always great. And I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Mike. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye.